I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. As we've been telling you this month, The Takeaway has been canceled. Canceled by WNYC, the public radio station that's been making this show for 15 years. But before our final episode on June 2nd, we're taking some time during these final weeks to highlight some of the best work from our fabulous producers here on Team Takeaway. And today, we're spotlighting our intern, David Escobar. Hey, David. Hi, Melissa. Great to be on the show with you. I mean, can we just pause for a second? Listen to that voice, y'all. This kid was born for radio. (laughs) I mean, hey, Melissa, I've been trying. I'm actually working two radio jobs right now. Besides being here at The Takeaway for the past nine months, I've been working as a news reporter and host at WFUV, which is the NPR member station at my college, Fordham University. All right, David, that's a whole lot of work. But what have you got for us today? Well, Melissa, when I first came to The Takeaway, we were in the middle of midterm campaign season, approaching the official end of summer. And what's more quintessential of the summer campaign trail than a good old county fair? I can just smell the funnel cake and the deep fried everything wafting through the air. But we weren't talking about food now, were we? Not exactly, Melissa. As much as I love my funnel cake, we wanted to take a look at how county and state fairs have shaped and molded their communities in their almost 200-year history, especially since in just two centuries, county fairs have transformed from simple cattle shows into a multi-million dollar industry. So, to answer all things county fair related, I talked with Marla Calico, President and CEO of the International Association affairs and expositions. And I started by asking her about the universal appeal of the county fair. It is a singular community institution. And the cool thing about it is that the fair represents that particular community. You could go to, for example, you could go to the Robeson, Robeson County Fair in a different part of North Carolina, and you're, it's going to be reflective of that community. It's something about that reunion. It is something about coming together to celebrate us. Your folks took you to the fair when you were little, and then maybe when you were grown, you didn't come back for a while, but there was something that was drawing you back, and you wanted that experience perhaps for for your children. And so we see that cycle over and over and over again for well over 200 years. In those two centuries, fairs have gained Ferris wheels, pie-eating contests, and other amusements. But Marla told us that today's county fairs still embrace traditions of the past. Agricultural fairs had actually existed and still do exist today in, for example, the United Kingdom, but they were a different type of gathering. They were more for the landed gentry. Galkana Watson, who was that gentleman in 1811 who brought his oxen down to the square in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, he was actually creating a different model. He had imported merino sheep because he wanted the United States to be self-sufficient in wool production. And so one of the things was that we've got to be talking neighbor to neighbor. So he took his sheep down, he took his oxen down, and we have recorded records at that first fair. They were giving, I think, a total 
of $70 for the all of the prizes combined, but they were recognizing the top pair of oxen, uh, the sheep, the pigs. And they even had, of course, if you're going to bring people together, they had uh, amusements. They had something called a phaeton, which is some kind of an example of an early amusement ride. They had food, of course, and it became an annual celebration. Okay, so food, livestock, and community building have always been part of the county fair model, Melissa. But nowadays, they've become the ultimate battleground for political candidates. So what makes the county fair so conducive to campaigning? Here's Marla once again. A friend of mine who manages a fair in Washington said this, you know, when people come to the fair, they leave their troubles at the gate. They walk into the fair with this mindset of reception that they're they're open to the wonder around them. And so I think from those people who are out there and wanting to serve their communities in an elected office, it's a perfect opportunity to meet the voters, to meet them face to face, to hope what we have are rational conversations where we listen to one another. But of course, David, in addition to the politics, I was really interested to know What is the economic effect of the county fair for local communities? We know for a fact that fairs change lives in sometimes the smallest of ways. In your case, to create a memory that makes you want to celebrate, that makes you want to pass it on to your children. It's that opportunity to walk into a show ring and instead of getting first place, your heifer lays down in the ring and you get last place and you learn how to do better. The bottom line for me is that fairs change lives and it is their intent to continue to do that for generations to come. Marla Calico, president and CEO of the International Association of Fairs and Expositions, is right. Fairs can change lives. And I got to say that right here on the cusp of summer, all this talk has got me excited for this summer's county fair season. But before we get into the dog days of summer, we got to talk about some of the historic cases that the Supreme Court is going to rule on in June. We discussed one of these cases, Holland v. Brockeen, back on the show in November. That's when the Supreme Court held oral arguments for the case, which will decide the future of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Right, Melissa. ICWA, as it's more commonly known, was intended to prevent Native children from being separated from their tribes and biological families. And it was originally enacted in 1978 in response to the U.S. government practices that forcibly removed hundreds of thousands of Native children from their homes. But now, some parents are bringing a case to the Supreme Court claiming the adoption process for Native American parents discriminates against non-Native foster parents. So we talked with Rebecca Nagel, a writer and host of Crooked Media's This Land podcast. Rebecca is also a citizen of Cherokee Nation. What the foster parents allege is that um, ICWA discriminated against them because it treated them differently. It made it harder for them to adopt Native children that they were fostering and that that violated their constitutional rights. In two of the three underlying foster care cases, those parents actually successfully adopted um, the children that they were fostering when blood relatives also wanted to raise the children. How is it that they have standing um, in terms of being able to claim harm, given that they that the adoptions they hoped to proceed with did in fact go forward? Exactly. And all of the underlying 
custody cases are settled. There's one that's ongoing, but the child was born after the lawsuit was filed. So legally, it's not part of the case. And it's also in a situation where, again, right now the foster parents have custody, they're raising her, and they won that custody over her blood relative, um, which is not how foster care is actually supposed to work. Um, and that's a big question. So um, it came up yesterday, Ian Gershengorn, the lawyer for the intervening tribes, argued that the plaintiffs don't have standing. And I think it's one of the really wonky things about this case where the facts on the ground um, in many ways don't match what was being argued yesterday at the Supreme Court. And I think it's concerning for folks who are interested, even just in the rules of civil procedure, but, you know, this idea of the integrity of the high court, you know, you're not supposed to be able to make up the facts about what happened on the ground to get a lawsuit all the way to the Supreme Court. What is at stake in this distinction between sovereign national political identity and racial categorization? Yeah, so the plaintiffs, these foster parents, argue that ICWA is based on race and they were discriminated against um, simply because the children that they wanted to adopt were Native and they are not Native. But that's not actually how ICWA and other laws governing the rights of Indigenous nations work. Just like I have certain rights because I'm a U.S. citizen or a resident of Oklahoma, certain laws apply to me because I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. And that's not a racial distinction. It actually goes back to the treaty relationship between my tribe and the U.S. federal government and that treaty and trust responsibility that the U.S. federal government has. And so the really big worry with this case is, is that, well, if ICWA is unconstitutional because it's based on race, what about the health care that I receive because I'm a citizen of my tribe? What about tribes' rights to operate casinos in states where non-Native casino developers can't? You know, there's a whole host of laws um, an entire section <laughs> of the U.S. federal gold code called Title 25 um, that treats Native Americans differently based on this political classification. And if the Supreme Court determines that it's a racial classification, it would be like a bomb going off. On this same point, you name-checked being a citizen of um, not only Cherokee Nation, but a citizen of the U.S., and you name-checked the state of Oklahoma. I want to I listen for a moment to something else that was said during the oral argument yesterday, this time by Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. It's sort of like the, the, the background principle of all of this was that states were getting involved in Indian affairs, and the Constitution says no— Congress can is the one that gets to direct it. All right, Rebecca, what is at stake with this federalism aspect of, of this case? Yeah, so one of the big, and actually it was talked about more than the equal protection argument. So the second big argument that they're making is basically a state's rights argument. And so it's a question of whether or not Congress has the authority or had the authority to pass this law in the first place. Um, and so it's a couple different things come up in that area. You know, typically family law is an area governed by the state, but there are a lot of federal policies that govern how states can carry out those laws. And then it's this big question of what kind of authority does Congress have when it comes to passing laws that govern indigenous nations and our citizens. And historically, that power has been seen as very broad. And what the plaintiffs in Texas are asking for is, 
you know, they claim to narrow it and to only narrow it a little bit. Um, but the fear is, is that they actually want to upend it. And so other laws that Congress has passed, whether it's about health care or funding for education, um, would then also be called into question. I'm wondering um, how you're feeling around sort of optimism, pessimism about how Brakeen will be decided. And if um, if any of the sort of relatively more positive uh, effects of um, of having had at least a single case um, decided um, towards the direction of sovereignty gives you any additional hope? I think, unfortunately, at the high court, we still have justices that don't understand federal Indian law, but also justices who don't respect it and don't actually see the rights of indigenous nations as part of the constitution. I think it is likely that ICWA will be declared unconstitutional by this court. And, you know, this case, the Brad King's case, it's not one of the big blockbuster cases that everybody is talking about, but I would argue that it should be because it is absolutely a test for the Supreme Court. Anybody who's interested or worried about the integrity of the high court, I would argue that this is the case that they should be paying attention to. Rebecca Nagel is writer and host of Crooked Media's This Land podcast. Rebecca, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five Whew, David, that song never gets old I mean, there is nothing like belting out this Dolly Parton anthem to the workday grind as you prepare to enter yet another eight hours of labor. Except it's not really eight hours for you, is it, MHP? No lie detected. I mean, for me, a lot of times eight hours is just like the first half of my workday. And you're not alone, Melissa. Data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that most American workers put in more than eight hours each weekday and another four to six on the weekends. That's not what our labor organizing foremothers and forefathers wanted for us. It sure isn't. I mean, efforts to institute a 40-hour work week began in the 1860s, but they weren't instantiated into law until the 1930s. Fast forward almost a century, and there are new rumblings on the margins of the labor market as pandemic-fueled fatigue has many employees looking around for options to push the ever-creeping workday back into a more limited box. In the UK, a test group of 60 companies and 3,000 employees just ended a six-month trial run of a four-day workweek schedule. And nearly every company that tried it is planning to stick with it. That's because the majority of employees reported less burnout and better work-life balance. And businesses in the study reported less employee turnover and consistent revenue streams. So we sat down with Eric Loomis, professor and labor historian at the University of Rhode Island. And I started by asking, in the U.S., what does our work week look like? Well, it could be almost anything. I mean, if you're a working class person who's working service jobs, you might be pulling together two or three jobs. um, And that could be anywhere from 30 hours a week to 60. If you're a professional, the average is well over 50 hours a week. And so, you know, in this nation, we uh, have pretty long work weeks. 
compared to places such as Europe or uh, even parts of Asia. And why do we think we have a five-day, 40-hour-a-week work week? Yeah, that was established. The 40-hour work week, the eight-hour day by the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938, which was a key piece of New Deal labor legislation uh, that established, again, the eight-hour day, overtime, uh, after 40 hours a week, uh, ends child labor in most industries, establishes the minimum wage, etc. And so that became the standard in what Americans think of as a work week. But now, you know, very few of us actually are working a 40-hour week. The eight-hour day had been a major goal for the American working class for a very, very long time. Uh, the Knights of Labor, uh, which is the first major attempt to organize the entire American working class into a single union, had risen uh, into prominence in the mid-1880s based in part on the eight-hour day. Um, they had a slogan of eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for what you will, because the average workday at that point is 12, 14 hours a day, often in really horrific conditions. And so it was a half a century or more struggle to get to that point of success in 1938. I mean, in so many ways, when technology is introduced into our work environments, we hear that it's going to make us more productive, make it possible for us to do the same amount of work in less time. But has technology changed the way we work in that way? It does make us oftentimes more productive. But rather than that extra time coming to us, it goes to the employer. So we work harder. We work longer hours. And a lot of the technology really operates as a surveillance technology so that we are expected to answer our phones or take a Zoom or check text messages at 8 p.m. or on a Saturday or Sunday. And it's really increased the workday and reduced our autonomy, even as the promises of technology will be to free us from the burdens of some of our work. How did COVID-19 then shift how we as Americans were thinking about our work and and what a work week looks like. Yeah, I mean, a a big part of what the aid packages did to pay us to stay at home was it it allowed people to rethink their position at work, right? Nobody had really thought that much about their relationship with work. And a lot of people now staying at home for months or or even, you know, well over a year or or longer uh, working from home began to rethink what what they really wanted out of their job. Rather than something that they had to, you know, kind of think about all the time, uh, it gave them space to sort of reconsider things. And a lot of people began to say, you know, I don't really want to commute to work five days a week. Couldn't I be just as productive working at home or couldn't I be just as productive working a four day week and actually taking that extra time? And applying it to my own life, applying it to my family. And so it really does create, for the first time in a very long time, a kind of collective, although relatively apolitical, rethinking of the role of work in our lives. All right, let's talk about that four-day work week. What would that be like for U.S. workers? The way that it's really oftentimes constructed at this time is, is something that would really benefit professionals over the working class, right? That office workers especially, um, you know, c- could work four days a week um, and they could maybe even work from home some of those days. And maybe they're working uh, an eight hour day. Maybe they're working a 10 hour day. But even if they are working a 10 hour day, they still have that extra time. It's less articulated for the masses of service workers in America, which really is the core of the American working class, because a lot of the ideas around the four-day work week is that we would have more leisure time. People would take that leisure time and they would you know, demand services. 
And especially in a tight employment market like we have today Mm -hmm. with relatively low levels of immigration compared to what we could have if we had more open borders, then you're really looking at potentially some real labor shortages at the working class end of this. And that would be my concern here is that we would be kind of burdening working class people. But for the sort of professional classes, it would be potentially a pretty freeing experience. Hi, this is John from Omaha, Nebraska. I'm a physician. My weeks shift between administrative and outpatient clinic duties, uh, that's about 40 hours a week, to inpatient uh, duties, which ranges from 60 to 100 hours per week with multiple 24-hour shifts throughout. The typical four-day work week conversation just does not include medical folks. But it's not just about who would and wouldn't get to have a four-day work week. There's also the question of what it actually looks like. Hi, this is Andrew from Milwaukee, Oregon. I would just want to know more about whether, you know, we're really going down to a four eight-hour workdays or is it four ten-hour workdays? As a parent of two children, knowing that going down to four tens would be even more difficult to find time with my kids in those four days, what's the trade-off? All right, so let's take up these questions in our continuing conversation with Eric Loomis, professor and labor historian at the University of Rhode Island. I mean, it's pretty clear from study after study that a more satisfied workforce is a more productive workforce. Um, You know, a tired workforce, a worn down workforce is just an unproductive workforce. Um, And so, you know, and, and there's evidence from experiments in places like New Zealand or parts of Europe that that seems to work. I think that the question is, are employers, especially in this country, which has traditionally been less receptive to work experimentation that would help workers, are they willing to give up the power, the surveillance that the technology has provided them in in order to sort of give their workers the chance to be these more productive laborers. And I think that's a question that we need to think about because, again, traditionally American employers have been more concerned, honestly, with sort of power over their workers than creating workplace scenarios that would make for a happy and therefore more productive workforce. But why? Why would you rather like look at your employees, like surveil them five days a week, rather than have them maybe produce even more for you, whatever it is, widgets or whatever your business product produces in four days? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And, you know, I think it goes back, you know, if you go back to the even all the way back to the 1880s, at the same moment that the French and the British are coming to terms with their workers joining unions and having a say on the workplace. American employers are uniting to keep their workplaces union free. You know, there's plenty of evidence that demonstrates that a unionized workforce and and a workforce that has a voice on the job is a more satisfied and more productive workforce that employees are, are engaged actively in ensuring that things run smoothly on the job. And yet the entire idea that workers would have any say about the conditions of their work really is outrageous to even purportedly more progressive CEOs. And you see this in the response. And so there's this long tradition in, in the U.S. of employers really resisting any kind of, of whether it's coming out of the out of the labor movement or it's coming out of government um, to engage in the kind of experimentation that would put sort of autonomy back into the hands of their workers. 
When we talked with Eric earlier this year, Melissa, one of my biggest takeaways was that the four-day work week is really about taking back control over our own labor. And historically, one of the biggest ways we've done that is through labor unions. Public support for unions is at an all-time record high, even going back to the era of the, you know, the great um, you know, union organizing of the New Deal and the World War II era. Um, Americans overwhelmingly now approve of unions, at least in the abstract. However, union density is at the lowest point it's been since before the New Deal. Um, and is only about 10% of the American workforce actually has a union. And so where you've seen, there's been a lot of very public uh, attempts to unionize Starbucks at Amazon, at Trader Joe's, but they haven't really been successful in terms of getting a union contract. And this is because the, uh, the structure of labor law in 2023 is almost completely controlled by the employer. As of this moment, there's something like 290 Starbucks stores that have voted to unionize, but not a single one has a contract because Starbucks is delaying as long as they possibly can. And that's even with a favorable National Labor Relations Board under the Biden administration. And so it's going to take more, I think, coming from both the working class and from the government to push through you know, labor law, such as the Biden's proposed PRO Act, that would solve some of these problems and move America back to a place in which unions really do have the structural ability to grow, which right now they really don't. All right. Just to go back to your point about technology and the idea that technology may, in fact, make us more productive. But then that productivity, those hours, right, they go back into the bank of the employer rather than into the bank of our own lives. I'm wondering if a four-day work week could potentially have the same kind of effect. I mean, that it ultimately might feel just as exhausting as a five-day work week if the hours or the expectations rise, like right along with that kind of productivity capacity. What it ultimately takes to control your uh, work is collective action. Um, And that collective action can happen through a union, theoretically could happen through other ways, but um, there needs to be pretty hard and fast rules about uh, time on and off the job. Um, and so, yes, I mean, I mean, the scenario that you describe is entirely plausible um, that, you know, employers, you would be, you know, say on the job four days a week, but you're still facing the cavalcade of emails and text messages and Zoom meetings and everything else that, you know, you were supposed to prove yourself as a good committed worker by engaging in rather than spend that time with your family. As we as Americans rethink our relationship with work, it also requires thinking about the structural uh, the, the structural possibilities to actually create rules about work that would limit the ability of the employer to exploit new rules, which ultimately, much more so than about pay or anything else, is really what the labor movement traditionally was about, is establishing rules on the job to provide workers the greatest dignity possible. And so we have to think in terms of more structural action, as well as, you know, trying to sort of, you know, convince our employers that, hey, a four-day work week would be better for everybody. That's fine as far as it goes, but it may not go that far the first time a crisis comes up on the job. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Eric Loomis is a professor and labor historian at the University of Rhode Island. Okay, takeaway, we got to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're revisiting the conversation I had with Harry Turner from the film Wildcat. 
we'll talk with Harry about how he addressed his mental illness with time in the Amazon rainforest and how taking care of baby ocelots was a bit like parenting. They're going to be a pain. They're going to do all the sorts of things to to wind you up and and they're going to get in trouble a lot. And you have to be the one to guide them to be the best that they possibly can. All right, David, give us that cutaway. Don't go anywhere. It's The Takeaway. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and I'm here with David Escobar. We're highlighting some of his work for The Takeaway as part of our Producer Appreciation Weeks. Hi, Melissa. So I might be one of the token Gen Z members of Team Takeaway, but believe it or not, I too remember the days of basic cable. And one of my favorite things to watch with my dad was a good old PBS nature documentary. A tiny island lost in the midst of the Pacific. It's the tip of a huge mountain that rises precipitously from the seafloor thousands of meters below. I love that. But back in January, we explored a different kind of nature documentary, told through the eyes of British military veteran Harry Turner. That's right, Melissa. After Harry suffered from war-induced PTSD and depression, he went to Peru's remote Amazon rainforest and found solace in raising orphaned baby ocelots. Okay, piggyback. The reintroduction was always for one reason, that was to put a wild cat back into the wild again. But it's just hard. When I sat down with Harry earlier this year, he said while the documentary was born out of his love for the natural world, it also tells a more complex story of navigating mental illness. This film came about just, you know, because of a passion of mine. I was in the middle of the jungle filming because I was, you know, 21 years old after coming back from Afghanistan, you know, I was struggling, dealing with my depression and I was walking through the jungles with this, you know, wild cat. This journey starts kind of like unraveling, um, not only with this cat, but with my mental health. Um, and, you know, this film, I think, can relate to so many different people because of just there's just so many kind of like avenues and corridors that people can like look at. One of the things Harry says in the film that really stuck out to me was that he wanted to go to a place where no one would know if he was dead or alive. And Harry said the Amazon represented that space for him. Coming from the United Kingdom, there isn't really anywhere that you can escape. It's a very small compact piled in place and i wanted to escape i wanted to get away but i didn't know where and growing up i used to watch kind of documentaries and and tv programs about you know different places like africa or or different places like the amazon and i just remember one day after i'd been medically discharged from the british army just going online and just thinking right i need to go away i need to escape i need to go somewhere which I can just hide. I can just go away, you know, and if I do die, then, you know, no one will be able to find me. I just dove in at the deepest end I possibly could because of my situation and where I was mentally. 
Harry's journey might have been about getting away from the stresses of day-to-day life, but he says the decision to document his experience, that was an easy choice. You know, when I first ever saw my first ocelot or saw my first jaguar or saw my first sloth, I got this like a feeling of like pure adrenaline that just like, you, I can't explain it to, to anyone that how I felt. It was just like this incredible feeling. I mean, it felt like I wasn't alone. It felt like I needed to be a part of this earth. When Khan came into the mix, Khan is the first ocelot that you see in the documentary. I just was like, this is unbelievable. Like I am, you know, dealing with my issues in a way which, you know, isn't normal. You know, I'm just kind of wandering barefoot in the jungle. And I am experiencing this with this animal. And it just felt like completely surreal and I just wanted to film it because I wanted to have their memories I never thought about making a documentary that wasn't even a thought in my head you know I thought I just wanted to have this footage so that I could look back on it I think that when I'm in the jungle I forget about my all my issues I forget about all of my problems but they're still there you know I want to be a healthy human being and I want to be um, somebody who doesn't struggle with depression but at the end of the day that's going to be a part of me for life now. But it was also a way of, of healing. If you've ever seen the film Castaway, you see that when he's alone on the island, he's actually kind of talking to a volleyball. And in my eyes, the volleyball was my camera. And I was kind of like healing via the camera. And I think that's what gives it the depth that it does in the movie. Wow. Ocelots are mostly native to Central and South America. They have these little white ears and speckled golden coats of fur with black markings. But because of hunting and deforestation, they're losing their habitats, which is why Harry became an ocelot foster parent. But as Harry told us, there are lots of challenges to parenting, even being a parent to an ocelot. To be honest, they're useless in the jungle without their mums. They... Are like normal cats, you know, normal house cats. They they are born and then they can't see for the first two weeks because their eyes are closed, and then their sight is terrible up until about a month and a month and a half old. So to bring them up and take them on the journey that they needed to be on to become wild, I needed to do what a mother had to do, and that was sleeping with them, cleaning them, feeding them, and and that's just how it started. And as I'm sure you know with parenting your kids, Melissa, sometimes them kids can teach you a few lessons. For Harry, his ocelots did just that. I knew bits and pieces about the jungle, but I didn't know everything. You know, I wasn't born there. I'm not a native. I don't know the ins and outs and and everything to do with the jungle. What these ocelots gave to me was a sense of learning. They became my teachers. They taught me so much about the jungle. They taught me how to walk off trail and and, and navigate. They taught me how to um, listen for different animals and see and smell different animals. They taught me to basically become an ocelot. So whilst they were teaching me, I was also teaching and helping them. And it was kind of like this relationship that we formed together of teaching each other different bits of the jungle. It was just the most incredible feeling, just um, walking in the jungle and learning from this animal, but also 
walking in the jungle and helping this animal become the most fierce and the most, you know, incredible cat that he could possibly be. That was Harry Turner from the documentary Wildcat. This is Megan. Hi, Megan. I'm Katie. It's nice to meet you, Katie. Do you want to hang out? Okay. All right, Melissa. Our last topic is near and dear to me because last October, I, like many social media users, was captivated by the trailer for a new horror movie called Megan. And yes, Melissa, that's Megan with a three, not an E. This is one of those moments when my young producers and intern teach me so much because I hadn't even seen the trailer. But besides that unusual name, the trailer showed clips of this AI-powered robotic doll attacking her victims while doing pirouettes. And Megan's awkward, campy dance moves inspired countless imitations on TikTok and fan edits on Twitter. Even Saturday Night Live got in on the fun. Megan is a box office powerhouse, but she has captivated one demographic above all. Gay men. But it wasn't just queer communities buzzing about Megan. It's true. Even though viral videos of Megan's sassy twirling put the movie in the spotlight, critics say the film's success speaks to how Hollywood is reimagining the horror genre. My name is Eric Piepenberg. I write about horror movies, television, and LGBT culture for the New York Times. Eric talked with me about Megan shortly after its debut in January. So Megan is uh, directed by Gerard Johnstone, and it is about a robotics engineer named Gemma, who's played by Allison Williams, who enlists her orphaned uh, niece, a girl named Katie, uh, to be a sort of a test subject companion to uh, this robot named uh, Megan. And Katie develops a sort of a big sister relationship with Megan. They play together. They talk to one another. They do TikTok dances together. But this is the horror genre. And as any horror fan will tell you, robots often turn on their makers. And let's just say it doesn't go well for anyone in uh, in Megan's orbit. So I so appreciate that you started by saying it's a horror movie because in our team Slack this morning, there was a bit of a dust up about is this a horror movie or is this a comedy? I would actually argue that it is a horror comedy. Uh, it is firmly a horror movie, if you ask me, but there's definitely sort of a, a, a camp thing happening here, which uh, adds a little bit of, of comedy to it. So I would say it's a it, it, it's a horror comedy. I think that's fair. But not a horrible comedy. <laughs> no, it's, it's a wonderful comedy, actually. Okay, so tell me <laughs> a little bit about Megan the doll. So we know she is robotic, she's AI, and she's going to turn. Are there corollaries to Megan in our world right now? Asks the mom of a nine-year-old who gave the kid a robot for Christmas. <laughs> I think there are. Um, I'm not a parent, uh, but I have a niece and a, and a nephew. And I think that there are robots out there that if you gave it to them, they would think this is wonderful. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a babysitter, but also a, a, a best friend. Megan is, is AI and can have conversations and uh, walks and runs, which comes in handy when she starts <laughs> to pick up weapons and go after people who are really sort of bullying 
Katie. And so there is a sense of this is a robot, but she's also a protector. Megan's trailer came out, coincided with National Coming Out Day and lit up social media. Why that response? I think one of the reasons was a couple seconds of this strange, awkwardly leggy dance that uh, Megan does to a Taylor Swift song that actually isn't in, in, in the movie at all. But I remember watching the trailer and thinking to myself, what is this move that she's she's doing and she was uh, uh, gorgeous she has beautiful big eyes and this middle part and she's wearing this strange sort of a-line dress there was something in that move and in the way that megan expresses herself that caught on especially with with the gay community there was just something gay about it um and i remember thinking to myself this is not like any other horror movie that i've seen before this there's something fashion, there's something gay here. And I think it all comes down to those just couple seconds of this weird dance that she does. All right, I want to dig into there is something gay or, or queer. I wonder if there's also something here about like her fierceness, her protectiveness, maybe even the fact that as AI, she's definitely not blood family, but she family. <laughs> right, that that's true. It's it's interesting. I've read interviews with the director and the writer, and they both said that I think to them one of the reasons that they think queer people might be drawn to Megan is because of this idea of chosen family, and that family can be whoever you want. And I, I think that's that's a perfectly fine answer. But to me, I think it goes beyond that. I think there's a there, there's a gay sensibility to the film in the sense that Megan is. This fierce girl who I I grew up with. I I knew girls like this in high school. Megan's the kind of uh, girl that you 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 want to hang out with. Right. Megan is like no girl, no no, but also yes, 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 right. yes, yes. <laughs> All right. I'm also wondering about the emergence of queer tropes and representation in Hollywood, like especially in a time and place where the world can be so heavy and, and difficult for queer folk. In the context of the horror genre, how do we come to a place where we have a movie like Megan? Horror has always reflected the world in which we've lived. You, you go back to Night of the Living Dead and the, the civil rights era. You go to the, the horrors of the 70s and, and 80s uh, and war and conservative politics. Horror movies have always held a mirror up to how we are, are living and I think for queer people, that mirror has reflected often very negative things. I mean, as I said, I'm I'm Gen X, and I remember growing up during the golden age of, of slasher films in the 80s when gay people were completely invisible. They just weren't there. Or if they were there, they were they were clowns. They were often the first people killed. And so I think horror has changed so much since then. So I, I think horror has a very complicated history with, with queerness. Things are better than they were when I was growing up. And I think Meg Megan mm -hmm. is an example of a film that there's nothing gay in the story itself, but there's a queer sensibility. And I think that's actually really exciting. Eric Piepenberg from the New York Times. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thanks for having me. All right, y'all, that's all we've got for you today. And remember, there are only two more episodes left of The Takeaway. So be sure to tune in and join us right up to the very end. But before we head out, 
Let me add just a few words of praise for David Escobar, who now has the distinction of being the very last intern for The Takeaway. So for all you HR managers, executive producers, and content creators out there, consider this my sonic letter of recommendation for David. There is no hand-holding on The Takeaway. Interns don't get coffee, they get assignments. And from day one, David has been pitching segments, booking guests, conducting research, writing scripts, cutting tape, and stitching together stories for a national audience. And all along, he's never missed a chance to engage, to build, to learn, and to contribute to the work of the team. He's funny, he's thoughtful, he's a gifted writer, and again, did you hear that voice? So David, we're gonna be watching and cheering you on as you build what we know will be an exciting and meaningful career in media. You're too kind, Melissa. I did not think I was gonna cry right now, but here we are. <laughs> we'll take it. And again, thank you for all that you did for the show. And that's all for us today. But come on back tomorrow. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and it's still The Takeaway.